The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, good to see you again. I'm so glad to be um, back. I've taken a little time off in July um, in terms of just preaching and being in the pulpit, although I was around, and um, it's good to be able to speak to you today and um, bring to you, as we do in our church, unpack parts of the Bible and actually ask uh, a lot of questions about it and also uh, see how the Lord uses His Word to transform us. And we're in a series in the Psalms right now, and uh, this one in particular may ring a bell with you. I um, had a friend give me a book 
some time ago, knew, many of you may know this, I love Jerry Seinfeld, love Seinfeld the show, love uh, comedy, studied it a little bit, just not like intensely, but just enough because I'm just interested in all parts of comedy. I just think it's really interesting. And this friend gave me a book um, on Jerry Seinfeld's jokes. Um, it's called, Is This Anything? And, and some of you may have heard of it or seen it. It's actually uh, decades of his jokes written down that uh, he has in a book, and you can just read them. And some of them, you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that was part of it. Some of them you recognize from the TV show and other things. One in particular uh, called Parakeet Mirror stood out to me. This one stood out to me uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that it reminded me of something because he begins the joke by saying, when I grew up, my mom really wanted um, a, a, like a whole side of mirrors in one room. And because when I grew up, I actually had that in my house growing up for me. I actually, my parents bought a house that had a whole wall that was all mirrored. And in the joke, he starts talking about it. He says, now, my mom used to say, hey, this mirror, this is perfect because it makes the room look bigger. And he says, what, what kind of a person stands in front of a mirror and says, hey, there's a whole other room over there. Hey, there's a person that looks like me in the other room over there. And then he begins talking about, you know, we put these mirrors and cages for parakeets. And as they fly around, what, what's the deal with that? I mean, you see a bird flying into like a, a, a wall or some sort of a, a, a window. I mean, what happened to the whole bird's eye view kind of thing? Don't they see the other bird coming right at themselves and they avert instead of hitting the window and breaking their own neck? And that's the whole mirror joke, right? And I can't tell it near as good as he can because otherwise you'd be laughing. You should be laughing a lot harder at this. But really, the whole point of it is the mirror reflects back, and it does. It's supposed to make the room look bigger. It's supposed to reveal a lot of things about the room, bring more light in, and all those things. You know, as the Psalms have been described by even John Calvin himself, one of the great theologians, said it's like the anatomy of the soul. He said of this, he said, for there is not an emotion which one can be conscious that there is not here represented as in a mirror. In other words, what he says about the Psalms and what most people say about the Psalms is that they reflect every part of us. They're a mirror you almost can't escape from. It, 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 it just shows every part of us. They're to show who we are. And when you look at them, they, they bring out the joy, the shame, the despair, the, the relationships, the, the, the elation, the, the praise. All of those things are wrapped up in the Psalms. In fact, the Psalms have been considered almost their own little Bible in themselves by theologians because it unpacks so much of who we are. And this psalm in particular, you may have recognized some of the language from it, particularly even the first verse, is considered one of the messianic psalms. When it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may have heard that from Jesus actually quoting this on the cross in Matthew 27. And why it was considered a messianic psalm, and the Messiah was the one they were looking to, looking forward to. Who was going to come and rescue them, redeem them, deliver them, the anointed one? is what the Messiah was. And there are times like this psalm that you read it, and David wrote it, and it's a song, even in, in the title, if you look at it, we didn't read that this morning, but it says, a song for the choir master. In other words, this is a song that was written, and it almost seems like it's for someone else. It almost comes across as someone else, and they're unpacking, because it's really hard to figure out, as theologians say, 
where's David getting this language? Not, a, not, not every part of this, if not some of it, just even fit for David. Who's he talking about? He's talking about someone else. And as we see, as it's peeled back in the New Testament, that this psalm is almost entirely quoted through that portion of Matthew chapter 27. Not just the first verse, but first verse all the way through. And I would have to say, I think it's fair to say that this isn't just an anatomy of our soul. We're actually getting to see how Jesus picked this psalm up so that we actually get to see an anatomy of our Savior's soul. And I think that is unbelievable. That Jesus is not this sweet, um, mild-mannered, cold character that did wonderful things. We get to see the unpacking of his own soul in his crucial hour of being on the cross and saying the words that many of us experience so that we know that this is more than David just talking about affliction. This is actually a mirror of our Savior's soul into the window of who we are. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, this psalm is crucial. This is key. This is one in some ways, some people as I read, they said every verse in here could be a sermon of itself. It's that powerful. So we're going to unpack it. We're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to, I don't have, you know, 31 points for us, but two points and one conclusion for us. We're going to look at the affliction. What does it mean to experience affliction? What does it mean to be delivered together? What is deliverance together? And finally, in our conclusion, what is a growing memory? What does it mean for us to grow in having a good memory? Affliction, deliverance, and memory. The psalm begins with a very profound cry. Why have you forsaken me? This is one of the most profound parts of the psalm. In fact, being the doorway of this psalm, like many psalms are, uh, many verses are into the psalms, this tells us, in fact, three times it's repeated that there's some sort of crying out of this, my God, my God, and you and I have maybe been in that place before. When, When there's an experience of abandonment, what does it mean to be forsaken? It means to be abandoned. It means to find ourselves in the depth of despair and sadness has overwhelmed us. It hasn't just come into our life and poked holes. It's actually covered over our head and we find ourselves looking around that there is no one, not even God himself, that is with us. That moment of complete and utter isolation. And I think as we read this, you see that it doesn't just happen in a moment. When he says, my God, my God, my God, three times over, he's pushing into the fact that this hits his soul deeply. To be abandoned, to be forsaken, that hits the core. And it could be circumstances. It could be illness. All these things are kind of swelling up in this passage, in this this, uh, this psalm. But for us, we may know that. I mean, the place, where is it that we hit them? My God, my God, my God. Not just once where we find ourselves crying to God to say, what, what's going on here? But over and over the repetition of going to him because we find ourselves abandoned. We find our circumstances running our life. We find our emotions taking us wherever they want to. There's a great thinker um, and writer 
named Nicholas Walterstorff. He's actually in his 90s now. He's a philosopher, kind of theologian. And years ago, he wrote a book um, really considering his son's death at the age of 25. His son fell in a tragic accident, climbing accident. And dealing with his grief as someone who's a, a profound thinker, one of the things that he kept trying to go through is to figure out, okay, what do I say? Either God did it or there was nothing God could do about it. He agonized, it said, over the question of how does he answer? I don't know what God is up to. Did God watch him fall? He said, my wound is an unanswered question. And he said, sorrow is no longer the islands, but the sea. That description is so beautiful and painful all at once that when the sorrow becomes not just an island, but the sea itself, there's nothing to even be on. You're swallowed up completely, completely overwhelmed, over the head, the devastation over and over and over. These first two verses tell us that there is an agonizing cry and he does not seem to be heard. Where do we go in that moment? Where do we go? Where do you go? I don't know about you, I I know there are moments in those times, and I've had those experiences for days and even decades, where I've cried out to God and asked, are you there? Are you listening? My God, my God. It could be over a small moment or an overwhelming circumstance that just continues to be a part of my life. And you no longer feel like there's an island but the sea. And sometimes in those moments, we just want, just deliver us. Just get us out. Sometimes we would prefer God. I don't don't really know if you're there, but just get me out of this. And sometimes we would rather have deliverance than God himself. And you know what's amazing about this psalm? It continues to push and push. And it shows us even the physical, psychological toll that it takes on him. If you ever wanted to be known, I mean, this is what the Psalms are. (laughs) Welcome to the Bible again. Because it doesn't deny, as we think maybe as Christians, oh, well, once I feel that, God doesn't care. This is different. This is actually not an escape of faith. Many times we may look at abandonment like this and, and affliction and experience that and think this is a loss of faith. Actually, this is not that. It is the deep engagement of it. It's profound acknowledgement of what our faith is experiencing. And that's what's happening in this psalm. Even in verses 14, uh, 15, and 17, and 18, it talks about it physically. Listen to the language. I'm poured out like water. My bones are all out of joint. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust. I'm poured out like water. Those moments when the affliction so overwhelms you that you just feel like your arms, your legs, your whole countenance is fluid. It's just this. Your inside's like wax where it just melts within you because you just feel like you cannot take it anymore. It cannot hold shape. 
the bones out of joint. you're, You're physically aware, not just psychologically aware, but physically aware of that, of affliction. This is the picture of what's happening here, of severe abandonment. And somewhere along the line, in Jesus's life, as a small boy, he was studying the Psalms. As a small Jewish boy, he would have been taught the Psalms. He would have been taught to sing them. He would have been taught to try them on. He would have been in the services and, and, and ringing them out with the people around him. And here at, in, in Psalm 22, we find some of the language that pierces and shows us not just what it's like for us to experience affliction, but the fact that Jesus took on flesh, sang the same songs we do, and then in his most crucial moment, what comes out of him? Psalm 22. The experiencing of abandonment. So that we know that there's something different about this Jesus. He's not just a Messiah like most people were looking forward to that really was a king. David, in his own right, was actually a a Messiah, small m Messiah. He was a a type of that. He was supposed to be a picture of that, uh, something that laid forward what people were looking forward to, the deliverance uh, of of evil uh, uh, oppressors around the Philistines and others. You may have heard stories of David, this warrior who would defeat all these enemies and bring peace into Israel. But he was merely a type, a picture, a cast of what was the real thing. I had a dog in college. He was a 120-pound black lab, unbelievable dog. Named him Samson. He was an incredible dog. I loved him. And... uh, you know, I trained him myself and taught him to play. And I mean, he just was incredible. But, you know, in, in, when I was in college, it was one of those moments where I just couldn't keep up taking care of him. So I eventually, after about a year of having him, I loved it. It was, it was so excruciating. I, I ended up thinking, I was talking to my parents, and I was like, man, I, I just don't have time. I was too busy doing school and, and sports and and fraternity stuff or whatever. And, and I was like, man, I just, it's not fair to the dog. So I had to give him away. And I gave him to this great family down in Austin, Texas, and they, and they were so sweet, and he had all these fields, and they sent me pictures. And they, I remember about, oh gosh, a month, two months in, I get this box, and it feels kind of weird, like there's something shaking around in it, and I didn't get, you don't get a whole lot of packages like that in college. You're like, okay, that's great. It better be food, because I need food, you know? I open it up, and here it is, is a few pictures in this white circular thing in this giant cast of a paw, and his paws were easily as big as my palm, and I have big hands. And they said, we want you to remember your sweet dog, and thank you for what you've given to us. That was a cast. It was a type. David is that cast. He is a cast and type of the real thing, of the real joy, of the real personal connection that someone else is having to this. And is showing us the honesty they have with God. There's an incredible book you really need to get if you have not gotten it. It's actually an older book. If you really want to grow in your own emotional life connecting to the Psalms, it's called The Cry of the Soul. It's by a guy named Tremper Longman and Dan Allender. These two, uh, one is actually a clinical psychologist and one is a, one is a seminary professor. And they said this about this Psalms. 
They said, we forget that change comes through our brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. Only face-to-face with our deepest and ruling passions is there a hope of redeeming the fabric of our inner world. The psalmist invites us to struggle, to flesh out our complaint before God in order to grasp something about his character. And how incredible that if this is the Messiah himself pointing not only to the small M Messiah, but someone beyond that because people knew that David, this affliction he would come out of, (laughs) that he was a cast for someone else, that there was someone coming later. Because we read in this verse 24 and even beyond, it says, for he has not despised or have toward the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he has cried to him. From you comes my praise in, in the great congregation, my vows. I perform before those who fear him, and the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever." What we realize in this psalm is whomever was in it, be it David or someone else, was being delivered. What we know that's fascinating and amazing about what happened to Jesus that's different than this psalm, the twist, is that Jesus actually experienced God's hiding face. In his moment of affliction, his deep personal relationship to God, even as a son, different than a son and daughter that we would be, that he is afflicted in a way to look at God and say, why have you forsaken me? He had never experienced that. The ways that we experience that on minuscule levels, on on long decades, whatever they may be, Jesus had never once experienced that until that moment. And what does he sing? He sings of the affliction because God actually hid his face from him. And I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible says it. When it says, he looked up to heaven and said, Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. Papa. He was forsaken so that we might know forgiveness. He was forsaken and had what we often think we have and experienced the full weight of God's hiding face so that we would know, even from the beginning, what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the picture. Who hides? Is it God or us? It's us. When shame enters the picture, it's not God who hides his face. It's Adam and Eve. It's us. And he's been asking us, where are you ever since? And so how does he come to find us? By forsaking the only one that would never, ever experience that so that we might be found and forgiven. So that we might know he not only experiences affliction, but he takes it on. This is what actually turned Nicholas Walterstorff, and it says, as a 90-year-old man, 91 now, to say what changed him wasn't trying to intellectually make sense of all the questions. It's that nothing else proves that God cares other than him stepping into his, our suffering himself and affliction and living in it and taking it on. 
And he actually quotes this verse from Psalm 22 and Matthew 27 and says, what healed his heart was hearing Jesus himself cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the cross isn't just some random historical event. It is the crucial crux of our actual understanding that God cares. He was forsaken that we are forgiven. And how are we delivered? You know, it's interesting in the Psalms, and you might notice this, and sometimes it may unnerve you as it has me. Sometimes when you, you know when you talk to certain people that may be a Christian and maybe they're having, going through a really difficult time and all of a sudden they'll say things like, yeah, but God's good. And you're like, well, well wait, I know you're going through something really intense and difficult. Are, are you okay? Yep, God's good. Yeah, it almost seems like they're jumping and not acknowledging the pain. The Psalms do this sometimes, and it happens in, in verse 22 of Psalm 22, where there's almost this shift. And some theologians say this about this, this Psalm and others. They're like, is this another person writing this? Because it moves from experiencing affliction to being delivered together. It moves from this deep pain to this calling out. Listen to verse 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. What happened? Why, whoa, why the turn? Where's the praise coming from? Here's something incredible that I love about this. Because you see him read these things here about, I am a worm. Uh, those who see me mock me. I mean, he's in the trenches, not just with the Lord, but everyone around him. What does abandonment and affliction do? It isolates us. What's the first thing you feel? You feel alone. It pushes you to isolation. Listen to what he says, verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me and mock me, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads like this. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him deliver. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're mocking him. So hard when you feel that. You know, when we experience affliction like we do, and we get to that place of isolation, there are a few ways we can go. Some of us walk away from the faith. Some of you may be here this morning, and you may be going, man, even to come back in a church is risky for me, because I feel burned, bored, cynical. I'm kind of like, man, I've been there. Some of us also go, get hardened. And we say, there are all those people out there. We just need to solve it. If I just isolated myself even more from those things, then I'd be better. But you know what this psalm does? It drives him back to the congregation. Now, this isn't just a pastor standing up here speaking to a church, to the congregation. This is me saying to you, the verse that pivots all of this is him saying, telling it to others, speaking to the congregation. It's knowing that he's not embarrassed. He's not in that place where he can feel that everybody mocks him. And you know those feelings when you're in that place and you feel embarrassed because your life is in shambles and you go, is my faith real? And you feel like a phony I've been there too. 
But you know what bolsters him? Is looking to the congregation. In fact, it's not only here once, it's twice. Let me tell you, when I was in a season of really despair for a decade, when we were living here, and we've been living here for 18 years now, just dealing with stuff in our own lives and, and things like that, just feeling this isolation and crucial difficulty. And I looked at this friend of mine who's an older pastor who lives in town who's kind of mentors me and, and is also just an older brother. And I said, I just can't. I can't pray. I can't sing. I can't do anything right now. And you know what he said to me? He didn't say, man, you need to just open up your Bible and work on you, you, need, you need to do this. You know what he said? He looked at me in the eyes and he said, let me pray for you. Let me sing for you. Let me praise for you. You don't need to right now. Just stand right next to me and let me do it for you. And that is never, I'll weep now. It's never left my mind. Because that's the congregation. You know why we were so starved to come back to church together? And why we need to be together isn't because you gotta have your church attendance or just meet together. It's because we need it. Because there are many of you in this room that probably may have sat here this morning and maybe you need to sit and listen to the people sing around you and carry the praises for you because your heart is havoc by whatever is afflicting you. Maybe you need the prayers of whoever's up front or behind you, listening to the silent confession so that people are holding you up and caring for you and loving you. Whatever you may need in that, that is the congregation. The congregation means we are not alone. It says in verse 22 and 25, I will tell of your name my brother, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He says it again in 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. We can't grow in isolation. We can't grow alone. In the moments when we find ourselves in any affliction or even joy and immediately find ourselves isolated is where we need to go to those who know us or maybe find someone that we have never met before. This is why we still do the passing of the peace. It's not just so we can make sure where everybody's saying hi. It's also so that, you know what? The Lord may know what he's doing a lot more than we do, and that person you just met may be the one that's singing for you this morning, that's praying for you this morning. Relationship. Because we're not delivered in isolation. We're delivered together. Did you notice this entire psalm is praised and sung about not just one person, but a group of people? It is about an individual struggling, but every time it connects it, whether to the affliction or to the praises and growth, it comes through others. It's with others. The psalms open our minds and hearts together to say you cannot grow by yourself. You're not made to do that. You know, that's even why we have a thing called the Trinity, which is like mind-blowing. 
to say there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe you've heard of this before. The Bible talks about that. God himself has three persons, three in one, one in three. Do you know why? I know one reason, and there are plenty others that are mysterious. (laughs) But one major reason is to show us that there is true relationship that we're supposed to have together in him. It's incredible. Look, one of my uh, friends and pastors, he was a campus minister. I did campus ministry years ago. and He was a campus minister ahead of me. He, says, he said this. He said, there's a deep lie in our culture that says you can know yourself as an individual, that to learn who you are, to be who you have, to find yourself and separate yourself, that you have to separate yourself in order to find yourself. The Bible's saying the opposite. The Bible is not saying go find yourself. The Bible is saying it's with you growing together, you learn who you are. The mirror is not just you standing in front of it. The mirror is all of us. And it's holding one another as we do it. And you know what's incredible about this psalm? That the delivered, the one who delivered us Like you read this psalm and you go, there's this incredible deliverance that he preaches. He sings of verses 22 on. But guess what happens? There is a deliverance that happens with Jesus when he quotes this. But guess whose deliverance it is? It's not his, it's ours. That's what's unbelievable about Jesus singing this psalm. Is that in order for us to be delivered, he gave himself up. And you know, the crucial thing of putting the Psalms to work, it's kind of the title, is our growing memory. This table is one we come to every, every week, and there's a reason for that. So much of the Bible talks about memory. Even this passage, you notice he makes mention of the fathers who've gone before them and people who've uh, talked about the things of God and his great works. And that there's this connection to the past. Even from before the Psalms and after, there's this constant, hey, remember what God has done for you. Why is memory such a big deal? Because we forget? I I don't know if you're a This Is Us watcher. I was a watcher of that TV show. Excruciatingly difficult, um, but loved the show. And one of the themes in the show, I'm not ruining anything for you, is about... The matriarch character, Rebecca, who uh, in, her, um, uh, in her age begins to develop memory loss, a form of Alzheimer's. They don't necessarily call it that. Some of you in this room have dealt with loved ones that have dealt with memory loss, and it is painful. I've heard. Uh, I myself have, have not had a loved one deal with that specific thing, but have walked with some of you through it. And the difficulty of forgetting faces, forgetting places and things and, 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 and the reality around. And what God does for us in this meal is to remind us of his faithfulness because long after we leave this table, we will forget in moments right after. Our souls forget, not just our minds. Our afflictions will come in just like that. Our circumstances will press. What keeps us 
How do you put this psalm to work? Is by going back, taking your memory back. Because when you come, we proclaim, as we say, you're proclaiming the Lord's death, that this is set, there's an event that has happened. And no matter what happens to our minds and our hearts, to forget that event cannot be changed. It can't be removed from you. That he has you. And here's the thing, that he doesn't forget you. Those days, and I've had them too, where you live a day and you kind of go, you know, I haven't even thought about God today. Maybe you look over this week, and let's be honest, man, I only thought about God a few times this week when I was in crucial situations at work or at home. But you know what's glorious about this entire psalm? It's called the Psalm of the Cross, is that every bit of when he was on that cross, he was not thinking of himself, he was thinking of you. Because we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, because remembering the past reminds us of our present and points us to our future. Because if we proclaim his death until he, what, comes again, we know that if he has come once and he has proven it true, and even the Psalms in the Old Testament are pointing to every bit of who Jesus is for us and not only addressing our affliction but stepping into it, don't you know he will come again and we will have none of the affliction and all of the approval and all of the joy and all of the singing without any moment of feeling forsaken. Amen? That's what this table is. This is your future. Let's stand together.